0: If you have your Bibles with me this morning, please turn to Genesis 11. Genesis 11 in your Bible. Last time we were together in Genesis 10, we talked about the manner in which the nations were separated throughout the earth. We kind of traced those nations and where uh, many of them ended up, at least as, as tradition and, and other biblical knowledge can help us understand. But as we step into Genesis chapter 11 today, we find that that the story of Genesis 10, of the dividing of the nations, is not actually the whole story. I told you last week that Genesis 10 is a little bit more of a, a step outside of the narrative, a broader understanding of what's going on. We've seen that a couple of times already in the book of Genesis. Last week was another one of those. And this week we step back into the narrative. We got the um, macro view of all of the nations dispersing. This week we get to understand why it is that they disperse. And there's actually quite a bit to say here, not just in this week, but we're going to take the next several weeks and we're going to think through various elements of the dispersion of these nations. So we look at the text itself today and then over the next couple of weeks we'll talk first about a man that we actually did see last week and, and is only found in Genesis chapter 10 and Nimrod, and then the week after that, we'll talk about the legacy of Babel or Babylon, and some thoughts about Babylon. Really, a lot of understanding in these next couple of weeks as to why it is God even put these things here to begin with. And with the compounding of languages, it's actually not that difficult. We read here in Genesis chapter eleven, verse one. There we go. And the whole earth was of one language. And of one speech. So perhaps last week when we were reading through what is commonly called the table of nations, you wondered to yourself, well, sure, we have the scattering of people groups which came from these three men and their wives, and I guess that makes sense. And we even saw scientifically that 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 bears up under genetic testing today with mitochondrial Eve. But that doesn't explain everything, Pastor. If everyone came from these three brothers and their wives, well, then why do people look so different? Why do people have different languages? And, and some of these questions could probably be answered simply by sociologists and, and the way things have developed over time as they trace one generation to another. But especially as it relates to the way people look, uh, people looking differently, that may not be that hard to explain. As people groups migrated from place to place, there would certainly be certain characteristics which would come to dominate, if for no other reason than just the homogeny of the culture itself, but perhaps also because of the environment within which they found themselves. In places where it's cloudy and cold, there's not nearly as much sunlight. We know in this age of science and technology that among darker-skinned people, they live in places when they live in places with with much less sunlight they tend to have vitamin d deficiencies because of the nature of how their their bodies their skin absorbs vitamin d this would lend any number of health problems in those darker skinned individuals that would have made them more inclined to spend time in places to live in places where things would be warmer where things would be sunnier where they'd be able to get enough vitamin c d excuse me to not have those Deficiencies. So those that would have moved to other places, they would have perhaps been sickly and, and have poor health because of that. And conversely, lighter-skinned people struggle oftentimes in places that have a great deal of sunlight, and that can cause many uh, problems as well, so that there would be perhaps less uh, it would be less likely for lighter-skinned people to spend time in those very, very bright areas as opposed to areas that might see more clouds or, or less sun throughout the year. So we could understand through homogeny, through genetics, and, and even uh, because of the nature of, of the differences in people groups and, and how they, those differences play out, why it might be that certain people groups would look very, very different from different areas of the world. But that doesn't necessarily explain languages, does it? And what becomes less obvious is that question of language itself, the difference in languages. It is a strange thing that three brothers, all speaking the same language, would become fathers to so many different language groups. Now, if we only had one family of languages... Such as we have today, multiple families of languages, but 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 we see a family of languages uh, that that are called the Romance languages. They're all Latin-based languages, and those Latin-based languages have a tremendous number of similarities. We talk about Spanish, French, Italian. These all have a tremendous amount of similarities because they're all based on the Latin language, and we can trace how language continues. And then, of course, from French, you can have um, uh, various other uh, breakoffs of that language. We know that uh, the French of France is very different from the French that is in French Quebec in and Canada, and, and also different from the, the kind of uh, uh, variation that we find in Haiti with Creole. And so we have all of these different variations of language that you can trace throughout time, and you can see those, but, but why so many different families of languages? And that's what Genesis 11 explains to us. So that we begin our narrative in Genesis chapter 11 verse 1 with the whole earth of one language and one speech as we would expect coming from these three brothers. Now we continue in verse 2. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Now, God's command to Noah and his family in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, was that they be fruitful and they multiply and they replenish the earth. That word replenish, we've seen several times throughout the book already, does not mean to refill. It simply means to fill, although in this case uh, it would be a refilling uh, of that sense, but that's not what that word means. It has been said before that by staying together and settling, in the land of Shinar, Uh, uh, this family was implicitly disobeying God because they were supposed to spread out and fill the earth. And and that's that's a fine interpretation. I've I've mentioned that before. I think back in my Jeremiah series, I had mentioned before the idea that they were being rebellious by not spreading out. I don't know if in this early generation, though, that, that argument quite Holds up. And we'll talk a little bit more about the numbers and what we might see with the numbers here um, going forward. But the big problem, as we'll see, the big problem in Genesis 11 is not really that they stayed together. Implicitly, There's something about man staying together that was the problem, and the solution to that was that God breaks them apart, that God disperses them, distributes them, confounds the languages. It was a solution to a problem, but it wasn't necessarily that them being of one language was the problem itself. It just facilitated the problem, and confounding the languages brought about the solution. Okay, so... We see nothing in God's command that would inherently demand that these families, especially at this early time, separate from another, in that it was just eight of them at the beginning and they're having children and uh, they are, are, are seeking to to survive and, and to to replenish the earth. It would actually make a great deal of sense. If, if, if uh, I was with my wife and, and three other couples and we were the final eight people on earth, we'd probably stay pretty close together. We'd probably stick pretty close because if we're not sticking pretty close, close, well, then there's no one to reproduce with our children. And if someone gets sick, there's no one to take care of them. And we work together so that we can uh, grow food and take care of one another and build buildings and everything. And it's a whole lot easier to build a building with four men than it is with just me. So I don't really see that just the idea that they didn't scatter as the great rebellion here. We'll talk more about that. So the Bible says that they journeyed from the east and they settled in the plain of the land of Shinar. Jumping ahead a little bit and seeing that this place became Babel, which became Babylon, a city at the tip of the Fertile Crescent, which has often been called the Cradle of Civilization, and we would understand that settled area to be in modern-day Baghdad in Iraq. And the number of generations that they were there before this event that we call Babel is indicated by the genealogy of chapter 10 when compared to the genealogy of chapter 11. So in Genesis chapter 10, verses 22 to 25, the Bible says this, The children of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram, and the children of Aram, Uz and Hol, and Gether, and Mash, And Arphixad begat Salah, and Salah begat Eber, and unto Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided, and his brother's name was Jokdan. So notice here that the Bible tells us that in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. Now, we would understand this for uh, certain reasons, to be the division that we're talking about, namely the confounding of languages and the dividing of nations. Now, there are some that believe that this time when the earth was divided speaks to a time when the continental, when the continents shifted, when the continental plates were, were moving around and the continents divided. If you ever look at a map, you can kind of see how South America might fit nicely into uh, Africa. And, and and so people have, have uh, speculated before that, there was a time where all of the land was together and um, that's possible, entirely possible. We would uh, certainly understand that the flood and the, 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 the breaking up of the, the um waters that were under the earth and, and all of those things would, would certainly be conducive to continents shifting entirely, uh, and, and spreading apart one from another. However, I don't really think that that's what we're speaking of here when we speak of Peleg. You're there in Genesis chapter 10 verses 20 and 25. I don't have this up on the screen but if you look in your Bibles to verse 32, the Bible says these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. So we see just a few verses later once again speaking of this division but it's talking about the nations dividing after the flood and that gives us a relative measure of confidence that what we're talking about here when we're talking about the the division in the days of Peleg, was not the continents dividing, but rather the nations dividing the people that were spreading out in the days of Peleg. So then if we take that and we make that our assumption, and and I I believe it's a fairly safe assumption, then from that, with Genesis 11's help, we can actually ascertain the number of years between when the flood happened and and when the flood was over and the the time period within which these nations, The languages were confounded, and these nations were scattered. So what I'm going to do here is I'm actually going to jump ahead. I've only given you the first couple of verses of Genesis chapter 10. I'm actually going to skip now to verse 10 and read to the end of the chapter another genealogy in Genesis 11. And then we'll come back to verses 3 through 9 uh, a little bit later in our message. So the Bible says in Genesis 11, beginning in verse 10, These are the generations of Shem. Shem was a hundred years old and begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begat Arphaxad five hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And Arphaxad lived five and thirty years and begat Salah. And Arphaxad lived after he begat Salah four hundred and three years and begat sons and daughters. And Salah lived thirty years and begat Eber and uh uh, and Salah lived after he begat Eber four hundred and three years, and begat sons and daughters. And Eber lived four hundred uh, four and thirty years, excuse me, and begat Peleg. And Eber lived after he begat Peleg four hundred and thirty years, and begat sons and daughters. And Peleg lived thirty years, and begat Reu. And Peleg lived after he begat Reu two hundred and nine years, and begat sons and daughters. And Reu lived two hundred and thirty years, and begat Serug. And Reu lived after he begat Sarag two hundred and seven years and begat sons and daughters. And Sarag lived thirty years and begat Nahor. And Sarag lived after he begat Nahor two hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And Nahor lived nine and twenty years and begat Terah. And Terah and uh, Nahor lived after he begat Terah and hundred and nineteen years and begat sons and daughters. And Terah lived seventy years and begat Abram, Nahor and Haran. So here we have a genealogy, which gives us not only names, but also ages. And that is where the help comes in. In Genesis chapter 10, we got a table of nations from all three brothers, but there are no ages there because we're not focusing in on that genealogy. That genealogy does not exist to push the narrative forward. That genealogy existed to give us that macro look at the the, the nations as they were divided. But this genealogy, very similar to our genealogy, um, not, not of, Cain, because in Cain's genealogy that goes down to Lamech, also did not give us ages. But the genealogy of Seth into Enoch uh, Enoch down to Noah, that one gave us numbers because we are tracing our history through that genealogy. That's the that's the line through whom the narrative unto Messiah is is drawn. And so we see the same thing in Genesis chapter eleven. We see the narrative push forward, and thus we are given these numbers. And what we find is this. Two years after the flood, Noah's son Shem had Arphexed. Arphexed lived 35 years, then had Salah. So Salah was born 37 years after the flood. Salah the Bible says lived 30 years and then begat Eber who was therefore 67 years born 67 years after the flood Eber lives another 34 years and has Peleg so Peleg is born 101 years after the flood and the Bible says that Peleg lives to be 239 years old meaning that he died 340 years after the flood And as I said, consequently, it's worth noting that Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So Noah did, in fact, outlive Peleg and so was alive during the entire of Peleg's life and thus would have been alive during this confounding and scattering. Uh, of the nations confounding of the languages and scattering of the nations and this tells us that the events of Genesis 11 if indeed the the nations being or the the earth being divided in the days of Peleg means that 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 is when the nations were divided means that's when the languages were confounded that these events the events of Genesis 11 and Babel happened sometime between 101 and 340 years After the flood. Now, it's worth noting if you recall from Genesis chapter 10 and the genealogy thereof. The Bible spoke of a man named Nimrod. He was a king, and his kingdom was began at Babel. Nimrod was the son of Cush, who was the son of Ham. We're going to be speaking about him uh, in large part next week. And, And while we don't get the numbers for the years of his life, he would have thus been born in the same generation as Salah here, 37 years after the flood, and two generations before Peleg. And to that end, we might expect that the city of Babel was likely built some years before the languages were confounded. It wasn't necessarily new construction per se um, that, that we were looking at when we get to Babel uh, in, in the next coming, coming weeks, as well as what we'll talk about in a few minutes in Genesis chapter 11, verses 3 through 9. Now, while we find that the men of our genealogical chain here were all born to their fathers in their 30s, it is worth noting that in these genealogies, it says that men still lived for several hundred years, and as they lived for those many hundreds of years, they begat sons and daughters. Now, today, most men in monogamous relationships have about a 30-year window, if, 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 uh, if all is, is going very well, they have about a 30-year window of having children with their wives. Of course, men can have children for much longer, uh, but, but wives' fertility tends to trail off in their Forties And within that window, at a two-year cadence, without any dying, we would expect usually that that something like 15 children is is getting to be the maximum that a monogamous couple would generally have within the scope of their childbearing years. Obviously, most families in history have not had that many, either because of infant mortality or because of health, uh, or in modern times, certainly because of choice. But we might assume for these men who lived to be hundreds of years old, having sons and daughters, that their window of having children was much li- most likely much larger than our own. So then as we think through that let's do a little bit of a thought experiment. If these men had somewhere in the ballpark, let's say, of 20 children apiece, and just for the sake of ease as it relates to our calculation, 10 of those were men and 10 of those were women, a nice 50-50 split here so that the men have someone to have children with as they continue, and and, uh, that's been a question that's come up before. I'm not going to address it today per se, but you say, well, Pastor, that's right. What about Adam and Eve? What about uh, Noah and Noah's sons? Uh, Who did their kids have kids with? Well, they would have had kids with cousins and siblings and whatever the case may be, and you say, wow. Wow, that's really gross and that doesn't happen today. Well, the reasons why that that's a big problem is because our genetic pool has been so uh, vastly and dramatically watered down that when you have mutations, those mutations are very likely to create major problems if you uh, have children with someone that's too close to you genetically. Those problems would not have existed at this point, remember. And so the, the problems genetically and otherwise would not necessarily would, would not have been an issue to this point. So just, just to, to to briefly speak to that. But back to our thought experiment. Ten men and ten women out of each of these men from the generations. And we see this over four generations, Shem, Arphaxad, Salah, and Eber. And that's not to say that Noah and, and Mrs. Noah were not also still having children, because it's entirely possible uh, that they were. And then finally, let's assume that each of their children did the same thing, 20 children, 10 men, 10 women, so that each of the 10 children had 10 children of their own. And if we were to follow this calculation through 10 to the fourth power, we would find that somewhere, that, that by the time of Pele, generation, uh, and and, and through uh, the early years of Peleg's generation, you would have something like 10,000 people within their community there. Now, Buffalo, where we are here, is a city of about 16,000 people. Now, we certainly aren't a large city by any stretch, but 10,000 people makes for quite a good-sized community, certainly enough people to begin to build a actual civilization. And, of course, we know that brass and iron and instruments had been crafted hundreds of years prior to the flood. This was knowledge that was well-established by this point. We might presume that these men and women were well-versed in these skills, And that we're not simply talking about a primitive culture of cave or tent dwellers, but that we're talking about people who are entirely capable of settling into a true civilization and infrastructure. And so we we think through all of these things just logistically. And with that being understood, let's come back to verse 3. And let's learn about what happened here. The Bible says, beginning in verse 3, and we'll read through verse 9. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make a name, make, make us a name, excuse me, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the languages of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So place this within the context we just described. We have this 10,000 or so people that have remained in this area and they have made a city and a tower. And one more bit of perspective here as we think through this. They desire to make a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. The city in a tower may again have been started well before God came down in the days of Peleg to look at it and to confound the languages. Uh, It's entirely conceivable based upon the timeline that it could have been closer to that 340 mark than necessarily that 101 mark, which would have even added to the population and added to the time when the city could have been built. And so at some point, God came down... Presumably during the days of Peleg where, and, and, and he saw what was going on here and he decided to do something about it. And this in and of itself is very interesting. God comes down to see this city and this tower. Now, we have no insight necessarily into what this means. We know that God would manifest himself unto men in various times and in various ways. We talk about the burning bush and the pillar of fire and the angel of the Lord. Perhaps it was that the angel of the Lord walked among them. Perhaps it was a more figure speech of sort. I had it asked me once before, well, pastor, why why would God have to come down and see something? He can see it from heaven. He sees all and he knows all. Yes, but what this shows is the deliberate nature of what God is doing here, that God is turning his eyes towards something. He is spending a a, a deliberate and a concerted effort toward looking into what is happening here. And as he considers it, he has conclusions about what is going on. And so perhaps it is that the angel of the Lord himself indeed did walk among them. Either way, God sees what they're doing. He considers what they're doing and he responds very negatively to what they are doing. He says there is a problem here. He says the people is one with one language. And as humanity unified their efforts, in this singular goal, what they were doing is they were building a tower unto heaven. And God says the problem here is that nothing would be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Now, we need to talk about what this does mean and what this does not mean. God made man to be capable, to be intelligent, and to be creative. To this end, we would understand that this does not mean that God is angry at them for being capable, intelligent, or or creative. God commanded them to take dominion over the earth. So it certainly isn't the fact that they're building civilizations that God was angry about. Certainly, as we already talked about, the idea of them staying together, it seems very unlikely that the problem is that they chose to stay in the same locale and and, and simply to be a family and to grow together as a family. And that's not what the text tells us. Now, he does mention that the people are as one and their languages as one. But as I said before, this is laying the foundation for the problem. It isn't the problem itself. The problem itself, as the Bible says, is not rooted in the idea that the people wanted to make a city or that the people were staying unified, but rather in this goal, let us make us a name and build a tower that reaches unto heaven. And we'll dig deeper into the implications of that statement when we talk about the legacy of Babylon in a couple of weeks. But this is a statement not just of height unto heaven, but also of intent. Remember back to Genesis chapter 1 and the promise that the serpent made to Eve, that in the day that she would eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she would be as a god knowing good and evil. And the Bible tells us that Eve was... Deceived, and she was in the transgression in that she was deceived. But the Bible never says that Adam was deceived. Much to the contrary, what we believe is that Adam, when he heard that promise, when he heard that serpent say, "You may be as gods, so knowing good and evil," Eve saw the fruit that it was good for food, that it was good to make one wise, that it was pleasant to the eyes, uh, and, and so she ate of it. But Adam. As we trace what Satan is doing through history, as we trace the nature of Adam's fall, as we trace the consequences that God put upon them, we come to the conclusion that Adam liked what Satan had to say, that Adam liked the idea that he would be his own God, that Adam liked the idea of casting off the shackles of God and devoting himself to himself. This is, in fact, the philosophy of Satan. Do what thou wilt. This is, Satanism is the god of self when when we 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 live in an age we'll talk about it more next week that worships the god of self it is in fact part and parcel it is satan who they are worshiping when they worship the god of self because that was satan's promise you can be your own God. We're going to talk a lot more about that after our family series as we reinitiate before we get into Abraham. We're going to have a little bit more to say about Satan and the conflict of kingdoms um, that we're looking at here in Genesis 1 through 11, the, the foundation of the conflict of kingdoms. So that was the problem. Adam liked Satan's promise. He wanted it. He wanted to cast off the, the intrinsic morality, the, the, the intrinsic demands, if you will, of a moral God, and he wanted to be his own God. And as humanity unified their efforts unto the singular goal of building this tower unto heaven, That's the same thing that we see here. When we read that the people came together and said, let us unite, let us make us a name, (coughs) excuse me, let us build a tower whose top reaches unto heaven, what we are reading is the natural evolution of the desire that was beginning in Adam's heart that mankind, through their combined abilities and capabilities, could rival God in power and so become the gods of their own existence. Now, You might be able to see where I'm going to go with this in the next couple of weeks as we talk about Nimrod and Babylon, specifically as we talk about Babylon in two weeks. As humanity undoes through technology what God did in Babel, as we have created and are in the process of perfecting the ability to break down cultural and language barriers and truly unite the world once again, We are seeing the very same ambition today in what we call globalism. The ambition to cast off every design of God, every accountability of God, and to chart humanity's future apart from God's design. That's why Orthodox Christianity has historically been very against the nature and the the promises of globalism. Because those promises are promises that are actually built on, if we may put it this way, A satanic foundation. It is the promise of Babel. It is God coming down, seeing the nations unite. And as soon as the nations unite, what do they start to talk about? Once they don't have, uh, once they're no longer fighting about cultures and they're no longer fighting about languages and they're no longer fighting about distinctions, what is it that they begin to talk about? They begin to talk about being their own God. They begin to talk about overthrowing God and his design. And it's a little surprise then that when we get to the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, Babylon is there. Just as he's here in Genesis 11, he's there in the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is actually not a surprise at all. Because Christ's return will be at a time when, according to prophecy, mankind has determined to do, unite themselves against the Most High God in a way that the world has really not seen since the days of Babel. And all of this is clarified to the extent that it is clear when we compare Scripture with Scripture, but it is most certainly indicated here when man determined to make for themselves a name and build a tower unto heaven, to rival God, to storm the throne room of God with this tower. And subsequently, to take the authority of God by force. And pastor... Seems like a bit of a stretch, don't you think? Well, is it though? When God says that this unified civilization would not be restrained from anything that they imagined to do, trace that thought through the Bible as we've considered it so far, through the book of Genesis so far. What have we seen when the Bible has talked about the imagination of man's heart? Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. Bible says every imagination of the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually. Genesis chapter 8 verse 21. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 19, warns against Israel walking after the imaginations of their own heart. Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the the prophet Jeremiah, regularly pairs the idea of the imagination of man's heart with another term, an adjective, a descriptive term of man's heart, saying the imagination of man's evil heart. And we'll come back to that in our application in a few minutes. So as a definitive part of setting up this city and this tower we see a determination that they would not be scattered and divided throughout the earth. And as God looks at this, This theme that has presented itself in Genesis 6 and Genesis 8 and now here in Genesis 11, which is that when man does what his heart wants him to do, when man is driven by how he feels, when man is driven by what he perceives, when man is driven by his own emotions, when man is driven by his own compulsions, his own urges, what man is driven to every time is evil. Bible says that God then and there confounded the languages so that one day the people of this great civilization could no longer understand one another and as a natural side effect of that change the people began to scatter to go find a place where they could be among those who understood one another and created life for themselves without the confusion and conflict that inevitably arises when people do not have the ability to communicate with one another. And in doing so, now for several thousand of years, various people groups and various languages and cultures have arisen and kept humanity fundamentally divided in that sense. So that people have historically been more zealous over their culture and their language and their people than the cultures and languages and people that are around them. Because these cultures have formed very differently one from another. And this has created a natural check against the predisposition of mankind to unite under a single banner, which, history tells us, every time man does this, ends with humanity uniting against their creator, who is God. And as I've spoken briefly already, and we will consider in the legacy of Babylon in two weeks, this will happen again according to prophecy. For this week, however, I want to fall back upon this thought, the imagination of man's heart. We see this idea very prominently in our age today. Trust your heart. Follow your heart. Trust your feelings. Go with your instincts. If it feels good, do it. Humanity has always had a deep appreciation for our own ability to think Reason, and especially to feel our way out of circumstances. And from the very beginning, Genesis chapters six. 8 and 11, we see the theme build up that God has warned us against such confidence in our own heart. That the day Adam fell to sin, our heart was hopelessly and deeply corrupted from the inside out. It's not just that our actions were corrupted, our hearts were corrupted. We picked up a virus, and that virus is called sin, and we cannot. Fix it. It is there. It manifests itself in various symptoms and those symptoms may come and go, may be different for you and I, may be able to be disciplined to some degree or another, but we have something deeper. We have a sickness inside of us that is called sin and it takes what is our heart, what is our our motivation and our our, our feeling and our will and our, our emotions, our compulsions and our urges and our desires, and it twists them. And all of these, the teaching in the Bible on this issue, kind of comes to a sort of climax, if you will, as Jeremiah is speaking to the nation of Judah in Jeremiah 17. I told you already that Jeremiah would often pair the idea of man's heart, the imagination of man's heart, with the word evil. We don't necessarily see that in this context. We actually see something much clearer and much more uh, definitive. So in Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10, Jeremiah writes this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it I the Lord search the heart I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings now we when we talk about the heart of a man we're not talking about the literal muscle beating in your chest that's pumping blood throughout your body but when the bible talks about the heart it's using the heart in an idiomatic way very similar to how humanity has used various other body parts in idiomatic ways to speak of various um, subjective or unquantifiable emotions or things in the human life so when we think about the heart we usually when when someone idiomatically uses the idea of the heart it speaks of the seat of emotion in the man, Other body parts that we find in the Bible that are used to describe metaphysical parts of men are many. The eyes are often the seat of understanding, the mind being the seat of knowledge or of will, the bowels to be the seat of yearning or of longing. Both the liver and the kidneys are used to speak of elements of conscience, joy, and grief. So when Jeremiah speaks of the heart here, he is speaking of this idea that we have described, the idea of the emotions, the gut, the feelings, the instincts, the impulses, the, the drive, of a man. And God tells his people through the prophet that the heart of man is deceitful and not just kind of deceitful. The heart of man is not just periodically deceitful. The heart of man is above all things deceitful and desperately wicked, Christian. Take every attribute of man's heart, and the primary one is that it is deceitful and wicked. It is not fundamentally trustworthy. Now, this does not mean that we as humans should reject, reject our feelings outright. Not at all. God has given us these feelings. God has given us emotions. He's given you instincts. He's given you a gut, if you will. And by the way, that's us using a metaphysical um, body part, right, to 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 speak to this idea. He has given us these compulsions, these desires, these drives. And so they are not in and of themselves wrong. They're there for our delight, for our enjoyment, for our protection, for our insight. So much of humanity is rooted in feelings so that to strip ourselves of our emotions is actually to strip ourselves of humanity itself. But in a culture and a society, That has taught and insisted to generations of people that our heart, our feelings, our emotions, our compulsions, and our desires are to be the preeminent force of decision making, prioritization, intention, and action in our lives. The Bible tells us just the opposite is true, Christian. Our feelings and our desires have a true place in our lives. But they are always intended to be subservient to the truths which God has expressed. So that when our feelings stand in contradiction to the revelations of God in his word, we follow God's word above what we feel. Solomon exhorted in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 to 27, My son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear to my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Put away from thee a froward mouth and perverse lips put far from thee. Let thine eyes look right on and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Ponder the path of thy feet and let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. It is the natural inclination of my heart to go my own way. But the wisdom of God's word calls me to attend unto the words of truth. And allow those words of truth to direct my heart rather than to allow my heart to direct itself. Because my heart is unreliable. You say, Pastor, maybe others' hearts, but I'm a pretty trustworthy person. I understand myself really well. I know my intentions. I, I know what's going on. I know when, when, when I'm, I'm even trying to trick myself and I see what I'm doing and I can handle it. I can control it. No, no, you can't. That's your heart lying to you. Your heart is lying to you about whether it lies to you. You can't control it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can control, who, who can know it? Your heart is deceiving you. It is not just that it's wicked. It's that it's deceitful, and, and you may not be able to see it. And I understand, I can't see it in myself all the time either because my heart is deceitful. The only time I can see it is when I look at my heart through the lens of God's word what James calls looking into the perfect law of liberty. And as I look through the lens of God's word, or again, as James describes it, when I look into the mirror of God's word, I read God's word and I see myself the way God's word judges me. It is only then that I can rightly and properly orient my thoughts and my feelings to reality. Because if I only orient them to reality as I perceive it, if I listen to my heart in this way, I will go astray. I will be deceived because that is what our hearts do So the call in Proverbs chapter 4 is that I would lead my heart out of its natural inclination and into what is true. And this is not an easy task. For there will be many times when what your heart says to you will not only be wrong, but it will actively uh, advocate against the truths of God's word, but yet it will be the thing that you want your heart will tell you that there's no possible way it can be more blessed to give than to receive. But try it. Give and receive and see which one is more blessed. My heart will tell me that there's no possible way I can be more fulfilled by investing in others than by investing in myself. Try it. See which one leaves you more joyful. My heart will tell me that I know best, but when I step out of faith and obey out in faith and obey God's word, there is a blessing which my own way has never seen and can never reproduce as it relates to God's way. And every person in this room who has ever stepped out and obeyed God in faith, above what your emotions or your intuitions or your instincts or your compulsions or your desires or your cravings have compelled of you, can testify to the truth of this reality. That as our Lord said when he was quoting, he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, man shall not live by bread alone. That's an instinct, that's a desire, that's a compulsion. To eat is a natural and a base instinct within, within the heart of man and within the, the, the body of man. But man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I often call these things the paradoxes of Christianity. That the greatest blessings of God come when I prioritize what he has said above what I personally feel or perceive or desire. And so powerful is this idea that it can actually fundamentally rewrite our hearts and how our minds perceive circumstances. Paul would write of something like this in Philippians chapter 3. He says in verses 4 through 10, though I might also have confidence in the flesh... If any other man thinketh that he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me Paul had every ability in his upbringing to live a comfortable life. And even if he trusted in his own works to believe that he could earn his way to God because he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees as touching the law, he was blameless. But what his society and his senses and his heart told him stood in direct contradiction to the declaration of the word of God. And Paul says, I will thus and therefore count all things but loss if I might attain unto the righteousness which is found in Jesus Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. In order to pursue the joy that was promised by faith in Christ, Paul set everything else aside. And he would write of some of those things that he had to set aside, one of them being... His own comfort. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks about a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And he says there, excuse me, I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And the answer of the Lord was what? Do you remember? My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God said, no, I'm not taking away that infirmity of the flesh. I'm not taking away the messenger of Satan to buffet you. It's there, lest you be exalted above measure for the abundance of the revelation that is within you. And then how did Paul respond? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, if if this weakness, if this sorrow, if this thing that I hate, that I do not want, this thing that makes me feel bad, this thing that society around me says is bad, this thing that everything in my body and in my, my experiences says is bad. But if God has told me that that thing that society and experience and my heart tells me I do not want and is bad, if God says that this is the thing that is going to be able to maximize the potential, his potential in me, then I am going to glory in that thing. Then I want it. I don't don't like it, but I want it. With all of my heart, I want it. This is the idea of leading his heart into the truth. He, He allowed what God had said to override what he was feeling, his impulses, his instincts, and his desires and his cravings, and he submitted them to God so that he says, when I am weak, then am I strong. Thus Paul saw weakness in Christ as a good thing even if it meant the suffering of the body and as we step out of our time together today I ask this question of you Christian where have you allowed your heart your emotions your feelings your desires your compulsions your cravings to override the statements and promises in God's word where has your decision making your priorities and your desires rested in you above what God has said Yes, God's word says truth is the right way. But your heart is telling you to lie. And it has convinced you that lying would have the better end of it. Are you gonna trust what God's word says or are you gonna trust your heart? Your heart tells you that you cannot be content unless you have that thing. Even if you must cheat or steal or get yourself into irresponsible debt, you must have that thing. Or you must work so many hours to get that thing that you don't spend time with your family, you don't invest in your wife. You must have that thing. But God's word says that the borrower's servant to the lender. God's word says thou shalt not steal. God's word says not to covet, not to lust. Don't trust your heart, Christian. It's lying to you. Trust God's word. Let him reward you for your faith. Your heart tells you that your parents don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand you. They don't understand the new generation. They don't even get it. They're hypocrites. They don't care. God's word says to honor them, not even for their own sake, but for God's sake. What are you going to do? Going to trust your heart, child? Or trust God's word? Your heart tells you to pursue that relationship that is outside of God's design. Perhaps it's driven by uh, lust. It's outside of the blessing of your authority. Uh, It's outside the design of marriage and family. It's unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And your heart says, it'll be fine. We'll work out the details later. Trust your heart. Trust your feelings. Uh, This is the right decision. It's the right one. And the Bible says, don't follow after that way. It's the way of destruction. Don't trust your heart, Christian. It's lying to you. See, for the third time in as many, in, in 11 chapters, God has spoken in Genesis of the imagination of man's heart and each time he has said it's predisposed to evil. And may we learn that lesson, that lesson from Genesis, that lesson in Proverbs 4, that lesson that climaxes in Jeremiah 17, 9. Keep your heart with all diligence, Christian. Know its capacity to deceive and elevate God's word to a position in your life that will enable the wisdom of God to override your feelings, to lead you into truth. Don't eliminate your feelings. Don't eliminate your emotions. These things are gifts from God. Just keep them in their proper place for the glory of God and for your best good. And let us instead use our hearts as the repository of God's word first and foremost, echoing the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.